0: Hello everyone, thanks for joining us today. I am opening up the webinar, but we're not going to get started just yet. I'm going to wait for everyone to
1: arrive. Hello, this is Leah. Thanks for joining us today. We'll get started in just a moment. Hello, this is Leah Freeberg with Fluke Reliability and thank you for
0: joining us today for this best practices webinar. You probably know Fluke as a test tool provider, and you may also know that we produce some of the industry's favorite reliability tools, from infrared cameras to vibration meters, but you may not know that many of the measurements that our tools collect now flow automatically into EAM systems of record. It happens via a framework that we call Fluke Connect. So our goal at Fluke Reliability is to better connect asset management data and teams with asset management systems to drive connected knowledge. And of course, that knowledge depends greatly on best practices in condition-based maintenance. So that's why this series of webinars explores reliability maintenance strategies. That's why we feature speakers from a variety of expert backgrounds. But before the presentation, I have a few housekeeping items to go over. Today's session is being recorded, so your phone lines are muted to minimize background noise. Also, we will save time after the presentation for your questions. If questions come up during the presentation, you are very welcome to use the questions feature on the GoToWebinar panel. You can submit questions as we go. So take a minute now, find the questions tool in the dashboard. At the end of the talk, I will share as many of your questions as time allows for our presenters to answer. If we have unanswered questions at the end, we will follow up with written answers. If you'd like to receive the slides from today's presentation, please let us know there will be a survey that appears at the end of the session, so don't hang up. A recording of this webinar will be available on the excelx.com webinar website within the day or so. Excellent. That's it for the housekeeping items and now for the main event. Today, we are very pleased to have with us Glenn Pierce, Vice President SDI, and Brian Harmon, Director of Procurement SDI. And they'll be presenting on MRO inventory amid COVID-19. Very, very timely. A Certified Project Management Professional, PMP, Glenn Pierce has more than 20 years of experience in maintenance management, capital projects engineering, and manufacturing operations management to provide a more connected approach to SDI's seamless solutions. As a certified TMP instructor with a strong focus on Six Sigma, Pierce brings a creative problem-solving approach to each solution he designs. Because no two problems are exactly alike, he custom-tailors each solution to demonstrate tangible and measurable results for clients. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you for being with us today.
2: Good morning, and thanks, everyone.
0: Our second presenter is Brian Harmon. Glenn, if you'll forward to the next slide, we'll take a look at Brian. There we go. As the director of procurement at SDI, Brian Harmon is responsible for ensuring the company's supply base works harmoniously in a connected ecosystem to better serve clients. Harman is a dynamic supply chain professional with a track record of rapid growth through delivered results for SDI, and previously with such companies as CRC Industries and Dorman Products. He's adept at overcoming complex supply challenges, establishing strategic alliances, and fostering positive supplier relations. Brian, welcome.
1: Good morning, everyone, and thank you.
0: Indeed, I really, really appreciate that you all have put so much work into updating your supply chain management strategies for this current situation for COVID-19. So before we get started, can you give us some insight into what SDI is about?
2: Yes, and uh, thank you. Um, Thank you for the uh, kind introduction, Leah. You're welcome. Um, It's an honor honor to be here today. Uh, It's also an honor to be uh, a partner with Fluke Reliability uh, you know, we share industry uh, experiences, lessons learned, and, and best practices. Um, so just before we go into the, the meat of the presentation, a little bit about SDI, who we are, and uh, kind of what we do. Um, you can see there our, our mission statement uh, is kind of unique, and, and one of our uh, our company mission statement really means something to us, and we drive to that. Um, in a, you know, very basically, we want to change the way people think about MRO. We want to challenge the status quo um, and, you know, transform MRO from a category of spend to a valuable uh, value creating digital supply chain. We brand ourselves as a digital supply chain company using technology to change the way people approach and the way they, they handle MRO and the supply chain feeding into that. Uh we are predominantly a North American organization. We operate for our clients in, in uh US, Canada, and Mexico. We are a Six Sigma organization uh and, and we've been doing this for uh for close to uh fifty years. Next year will be our, our fifty year anniversary. Um, we focus a lot on our partnerships. Um you know some of those, just to name a few, we've already mentioned fluke. Uh, but you know, Accenture, uh, AutoCrib is an industrial vending partner that we, we work with. Uh, Penn State Center for Supply Chain Research, University of Tennessee Reliability and Maintenance Center is, is one. And, and Bricotta is a, uh, a, uh, virtual camera, uh, system with, uh, that helps us do secure storage management, uh, basically 24 7. Um, some of the tools behind the scenes we use, um, We'll talk about a little bit later on about data and how we focus on data to to uh, as the basis for everything we do, Um, and we also have some analytical tools which we branded as Zeus, uh, which we use internally to do data analytics and um, everything around our clients' data and management and help it feed into the supply chain. So the first poll question.
0: Indeed, I feel very lucky to have you all here today. Thank you, and uh, to the audience, um, given our current situations, we thought it would help us to know the current situation at your facility. So I'm gonna start off, actually, by asking this question of everyone on the call. I would like to know, how are your organization's maintenance and reliability teams currently working? So in your facility, is it pretty much the same as in normal times? Are most members on site? a small number working remotely there's a skeleton crew on site most others are working remotely we're running with a few or no team members on site or we're we're had to shut we had to be shut down Um, so take a minute read through those questions and um, let us know which of those one and unfortunately just one question best reflects your current work situation. And this will, will help. Obviously, Glenn and Brian have uh, put a lot of work into adjusting their advice for the current situation, but knowing where you all are at will help them during this presentation tailor what they say even more. So we have about 60% of the audience now who voted. We'll give it just another 30 seconds or so. Make it your best guess, uh, and give us your answer, and then I'm going to share the results with everyone so we can see across the board how we're doing all right, we are close to seventy five percent and'm going to close and share the results. okay, so fifteen percent say it's pretty much the same thirty three percent say most members are on site, but a small number are working remotely thirty six percent say a skeleton crew is on site and most are working remotely. Ten percent were running with a few or no team members on site, and six percent are shut down. Brian and Glenn, what do you think about those numbers?
2: Very interesting. Um, it pretty much fits what uh, we've been seeing with our uh, current customer base and the feedback we've been receiving. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I know everyone's doing the best they can. So let's move on to the presentation. I'm going to hide the poll now and back to you all.
2: Okay. Thank you. Um, our original intent today with this webinar um, was to talk about best practices uh, normal, under normal operating conditions. But you know, with COVID-19 and the pandemic, uh, we've kind of changed on the fly uh, just due to the extraordinary times we're currently living in, and it's kind of changed the way people are, are thinking, and so we've decided to to pivot a little bit and talk about inventory management from a risk perspective. Uh, obviously, COVID-19 has, uh, created a more demanding MRO marketplace. Uh, more than ever, you need to partner with your suppliers, supply chain and sourcing people, uh, to ensure you're getting you know, through this and, and, and maintain, uh, operational effectiveness. Um, so we'll go through three areas of risk related to inventory management and, uh, some of the things you can do to mitigate that risk. Uh, things the maintenance person can do. Uh, Or should do, um, and things in their supply chain, you know, people they can partner with, um, and understand that communication is the key to that. Um, So, companies that have gotten by with a break fix, maintenance repair strategy, they need more proactive approach. I mean, that applies anytime, but even more so um, in today's uh, with everything that's going on. Uh, preventive and, and predictive maintenance that, that maximizes equipment uptime reduces the need for emergency parts. Uh, and, you know, it's critical in this, in the uh, current environment, but also post COVID-19 world. That's going to be very important as well. Uh, collaboration between maintenance and the procurement and supply chain professionals, uh, is critical, uh, for visibility into the supply and demand of reliable and predictable operations. At the end of the day, your MRO inventory uh, needs to support your maintenance strategies, whether you're in a reactive strategy, whether you're in that transition of, of planning uh, strategy, or whether you're on up that curve and you're into, uh, you know, the successful realm of, of uh, predictive uh, type maintenance strategies. Um, so, you know, from a reactive standpoint, you know, per, per, Procurement's normally focused on cost reductions, right? So when you talk to uh, the procurement pr- professionals of the world, they're looking how to reduce costs through either volumes or uh, what they're buying, where they're buying it from, leverage and spend from different suppliers. Uh, in today's you know environment, it's more about uh, the supply chain itself, not so much cost at this point. Um, you know, plan maintenance, uh, demonstrated by measured improvements in availability, scalability, manageability, uh, but it must be collaborative. Uh, you can't do that in a bubble. Uh, it takes that alignment. Uh, your maintenance strategy must be supported and aligned with your MR to, MRO inventory and, and the strategy that supports that. Um, your, for lack of a better term, your maintenance strategy is only as good as your MRO supply chain that supports it. You know, in my career, I've seen a lot of. Um, what some would consider world-class maintenance organizations that fail in basic functions due to MRO supply chain. They know the part's going to fail, but when it does fail, they look and the part's not in stock, right? Um, you know, many times it's a it's a simple storing function. It may be inaccurate inventory, poor cycle counting methodology. There are several things that can go into that. Uh, but from a maintenance standpoint, it's important to have the part uh, when you need it um at at the appropriate time so uh, we'll talk a little bit about um MRO industry the overview uh the market landscape of of MRO and some some folks will know this uh some of these numbers may be surprising but you know the MRO uh global supply chain market is a 650 billion dollar a year market um around 143 billion in North America alone uh, most MRO or indirect spend is high volume, uh, low value transactions, typically less than than $400 uh, per transaction. And what that means, with the cost of creating purchase orders, you know, anywhere between $75 and $250 uh, for each purchase order from from end to to invoice, from source to pay, uh, that can get very, very expensive because you're talking hundreds and even thousands of of transactions. Um, MRO maturity in the marketplace is an issue. Um, for most, MRO is a necessary evil of, of manufacturing. I know back in uh, my day, you know, as long as the part was there, uh, it, it's good. Um, you know, One of the questions I ask, I, I meet with a lot of plant managers, and one of the first questions I ask is in their, in their weekly staff meeting, how often does the storeroom or MRO spare parts come up? Um, and if the... Plant manager tells me every week or ever so often that tells me they got a problem in their supply chain. That should never be on a plant manager's radar. That should be one of those things that just functions behind the behind the scenes. Um, so there's a historically there's a lack of, of strategic focus on MRO. There's a lack of investment in the processes and, and lack of innovation. I, I see lots of storerooms that are that are still operating the way they did in the in the 80s or even even uh, beyond that. Um, you know, lots of clients, I've seen this as well, I've visited a lot of different types of manufacturing, but I've seen clients purchase brand new ERP systems and they load their old data in the system. It's kind of like buying a brand new Mercedes and, you know, putting your old tires on the Mercedes. Um, you know, inventory is not connected, connected to your uh, computerized maintenance management systems or CMMSs. Uh, on occasion, but not very often, I see you know barcoding in place or no technology in place to manage storeroom, scanning devices, automated cycle counting, uh things like that. Um, disaggregated, uh, increasingly global supply chains. There's a limited visibility to future demand stock outs, uh process waste. Um and we do a lot of process mapping on on uh, MRO uh, process flows and and Basically, what we end up doing is gap analysis and finding out where some of the uh, shortcomings are m um, r o supply chain historically is is very highly fragmented uh it's a very segment uh, segmented supply base no single supplier in the market you think about m r o and this is this is another surprising statistic but no single supplier has more than five percent market share in the m r o market space, which is uh pretty surprising to me um General and specialty distributors. You got local distributors. You got regional distributors. You got national distributors. Then you have your OEMs, which in lots of cases are, are global uh, in, in nature. Um, with Amazon and other e-commerce catalogs, we're beginning to see a shift in uh, industry consolidation, uh, and it's it's mostly out of um, out of demand. Um, you either shift or get on board, or you're going to be left behind. And I, you know, we're seeing. The COVID-19 crisis, I think, is is, uh, is putting, shedding some light on some of those gaps. Uh, change is being demanded in the global marketplace. Uh, COVID-19 has brought many uh, gaps to light. Um, there are shifts in e-commerce. Uh, we're seeing now, I was on uh, Amazon the other day, not to pick on Amazon, but you know, the government's taking control of, of lots of PPE supplies and uh, you can't just go out and buy face masks anymore. They're hard to come by. Uh, For our client base, we've had to jump through hoops uh, to keep continuity of supply on some of those things that we never would have thought would be critical in the past, but they have become very, very critical. Um, More influence from reliability programs, machine learning technologies, the Internet of Things, all of of these up-and-coming technologies are putting a stress on the uh, MRO supply chain. And they're starting to get the focus that it, it, it deserves. Uh, enterprise asset management systems are, um, when you, those are co- up and coming, and people are starting to realize some of the gaps in the MRO supply chain because of that. Um, and folks are moving towards more of an enterprise wide focus versus focusing on MRO. It used to be MRO and storerooms were operated by plant, and every plant kind of did their own thing. So now you're getting folks to realize that it's a, it's an enterprise wide objective not just single plants and you need to standardize across your your organization um some of the m r o challenges uh and these are uh, some benchmarking we do with our clients and some of our partners uh the majority of the sources for this information I'm showing here are some of these statistics um uh, Penn state Center for supply chain research uh, which is one of our partners and one of those s m r p um which most of you guys, I'm sure, are familiar, familiar with is Society for Maintenance and Reliability Professionals. Uh, and also SDI is 49 years of, of market intelligence. Uh, we've learned a lot of things over the years, uh, what we've been doing. So uh, 75% of MRO inventory and purchasing data is inactionable. And we'll talk about that term inactionable a little bit later on in this presentation. Um, 25% of labor costs. Mechanics chasing parts and not turning wrenches. It's it's non-value added. Uh, for those of you that understand the eight wastes of of lean, uh, that's one of the the key things. Folks running all over the place looking for parts. Fifty uh, percent of the work work orders cannot be completed because they're waiting on parts. And I, I've seen that where it's it's even higher than that in some of the site assessments and and uh, industrial partners we we've, we've uh, talked to. 42% of unplanned downtime can be attributed to poor supply chain practices, wrong min-max levels, improper lead times. Um, that lead time is, is one of the things that's come to light now with the COVID-19 that is, that is putting stress on supply chains. And, and Brian will talk about that a little bit more detail shortly. Uh, being a slave to single-source suppliers or OEMs and just poor data in general. plus of all demand is reactive, and 97% of lead times are inactive, uh, while work order backlogs continue to grow, um, and because of the misunderstanding of the actual lead time on on the parts that you need. So obviously we're in some challenging times. Um, The COVID-19 crisis has created Uh, Many unique challenges that uh, we may not have realized just a few weeks ago. Um, Lots of folks are are modifying what they're doing in the marketplace. We've been at at SDI. We've been actively polling our clients and partners on uh, how folks have been changing, how you're adapting to what we're doing. We we actually have a weekly uh, newsletter that's been going out, kind of sharing some of those uh, best practices, or I guess. You know, change on the fly type practices uh, across the industry. Uh, the our second edition of that went out yesterday. Um, Reduce or altered shifts for maintenance and engineering staff. Uh, production assets of essential industries are maxed out. Um, I've seen and talked to some folks where um, PMs are being postponed and they're focusing on on output, uh, which we all know as maintenance professionals. That's that's not a good Habit to get into, um, unmanned or reduced staggered shifts, uh, confines, uh space in the storerooms, and the need for social distancing is limiting staff. You know, most folks have you don't have a lot of real estate for storerooms, right? It's it's very small, compact space, in lots of lots of cases. So obviously, from with the social distancing, that creates a challenge in itself. Um, storerooms are not secure; uh, they're either self-service or they're they're free to every, anyone in the organization to go in and and um you know what what we've seen in in some of our uh, partners is that you know some of the things have become hot commodities now, right respirators and uh latex gloves and things like that and we have had some instances we've seen that our clients these things just disappear um they hit a loading dock and and they end up going somewhere. nobody knows where they are uh who would have ever thought? Respirators and hand sanitizer would be in short supply. Nobody would have thought of that just a few weeks ago. Um, not to mention toilet paper. That's a whole different story. We won't won't go there. Um, I've spent a majority of my career in manufacturing roles and never knew the difference between an N95 and a KN95 mask. Um, basically, a, a KN95 is basically the Chinese version of the N95 mask, but I didn't know that. And I've been I've been in this industry for my whole career and uh many, many years. And uh I, I never knew that. So we learn something new every day. All right. Um, so what can you do? And uh I'll turn it over to Brian. Uh Brian's gonna cover some of the uh mitigation strategies of, of what you can do to, to address
1: some of these concerns. All right. Well hello everyone. Um This is Brian Harmon, Um, glad you could all join us today. It looks like we've got a a poll question number two before we get started here.
0: Thank you, yes. I am going to do the same thing, folks, as before. I'm going to turn this poll live so that you all can answer. How strong is the collaboration between maintenance and the supply chain in your organization? Select just one of these options. We communicate regularly and our systems are integrated. We communicate regularly, but our systems are separate. We operate fairly independently except for emergency needs. We don't really get along. And uh, there may be other other realities in there, so just pick the one that is the most reflective of your current state. We have about half folks who have voted already. I'll give it a few more minutes, and then we'll talk about the results before we get back to what Brian has to share with us. So how strong is the collaboration between maintenance and the supply chain in your organization? We heard Glenn say that communication is, is number one in this. So you'll see communication and collaboration here. We're at about 70%, going for 75. Are you integrated? Are you communicating? Or are you independent? Or you just don't talk? All right, I'm going to close it down and share the results and see what we got. 17% communicate regularly and their systems are integrated. 46% communicate regularly, but our systems are separate. 32% operate fairly independently except for emergencies and 5% don't get along. All right, so now I'm gonna ask Glenn and Brian, how does how does this uh, relate to what you typically see?
1: You know, I'd say it, it falls in line with what we do normally see it, it it points out that there's opportunity for you know further integration really uh is mm-hmm. the main the main takeaway there
0: Mhm. well i'm glad that uh 46 percent already have good communication because that's a good pillar all right i'm going to shut the poll down now and turn it back over to you
1: Okay, um, so I, I first wanted to just talk a little bit about um, some of the supply chain tactics uh, you know that, that that really are important to help mitigate what we're all facing today with COVID 19. Um, you know the the first piece, it sounds kind of obvious really, but but really just making MRO part of the plan. Um, in a lot of cases, a lot of systems uh, it don't have MRO as part of say their MRP replenishment planning. Um, it's it it's not part of the automated replenishment planning, um, you know, and that's a first step to see where there's opportunity to to expand that and just build it into the overall paradigm of, of supply chain planning, um, you know, and that that will in, in inherently increase its visibility on the MRO demand. Um, you know, the demand piece is a is a huge part of it, whether you're forecasting it or not. Um, you know, whether you're looking at historical volumes um you know it all of those things will, will help you get some get some foresight on, on where demand may be. Um, you know, as Glenn mentioned a little bit earlier around inventory accuracy, uh, this is one of the Achilles heels of uh, of, of parts availability. If, if you don't know what you have, you don't know when you need more. Um, and the this next the fourth bullet here about identifying inventory critical spares uh is is, is a particular interest. It's, it's one that we, uh, really focus on with our clients. Um, you know, defining what exactly is a critical spare varies from organization to organization. Um, you know, a lot of times it's about lead time. It's, uh, you know, it's about, uh, what machine those items go to, Hey, if it's on our line one or high volume item or high high volume machine, that's going to be critical to the operation. You know, those, those types of, uh, you know, practices to identify those items are are critical, because clearly wherever you identify uh, where there's a the largest risk, that's where you're going to want to focus in terms of just bolstering your on-hand inventory levels and your supply chain strategy. Um, you know, interestingly enough, I mean, it used to be just lead time was part of what um, factored into that equation of what's a critical spare, but, you know, now, um, the country of origin, the ultimate country of origin, is is really a kind of a, a new uh, piece of the puzzle that, you know, typically if it was bought through U.S. distribution at, say, a five-day lead time, it didn't really matter that it ultimately came from from China or or, or Europe or wherever it uh, originated from. And, and now with lead times being constrained, you know, uh, borders are, are, are shut down in some cases. Those uh, That country of origin is, is an integral piece uh and the second to last bullet point here around relationships i mean this is this is very key where you know we 're starting to see even with you know large m r o distributors and things they're subject to to governmental allocations and things um and and w- if you don't already have a strong relationship with some of these suppliers and you 're expecting the same kind of lead times um you know there may be risk there uh the last bullet point here is really around um you know evaluating you know scheduled maintenance um and, and really trying to plan further and further out uh and that kind of rolls up to some of those points above about that that demand uh trying to the more uh foresight the more you can see down the horizon the, the better better off you're going to be to to make sure you got have what you needed so uh so speaking around demand management really the the first four bullet points here are really around mitigating demand um, and finding some creative ways to reduce the amount of uh, replenishment of at least new. Um, and what I mean by that, uh, the first three bullet points are really around, you know, hey, where can you reuse? Um, you know, where can you, uh, you know, upgrade p- products that you typically just went out and just replenished a new item when it broke? Um, where can you you know, perhaps look at uh, either some remand channels to to buy those items, or or just you know send them out for repair, where typically you just replace with new. Um, that'll just help just tamp down the the demand curve uh, and and you know make you less reliable on the supply chain if you can uh, re- repair it yourself or you know with a with a nearby repair house. Um, The second to last bullet point here, uh, you know, sounds like it may be common sense, but you'd be surprised that with clients that have, of ours that tend to have, you know, a a large amount of different sites where they're doing uh, manufacturing, there's a lot of common items shared across those sites. uh, There's typically not a lot of visibility to transfer materials around um, rather than just, uh, you know, triggering another replenishment by. that's also a good tactic to to see where there's opportunity to look at that. Uh, and lastly, I kind of spoke a little bit about this in terms of just the hindsight, looking at your his you know your, your purchase history, uh, figuring out your your high spend items, your high volume items, where that overlaps with your critical skus, and 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 you know putting in in, in place some some tactics to help um, improve your availability. So, um, a little bit more on 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 that uh, with with supply. You know, a lot of this there's several key things that can be done here, uh, and a lot of cases within storerooms or sometimes even out slightly outside of storerooms, there tend to be kind of squirrel stashes of of product. It's it's really good to get your eyes on that. Uh, you know, cycle count that inventory, make sure it's incorporated in in the system, so you know what you have. Um, the the second bullet point around securing the storeroom 24 7 this is kind of a standard practice here but it, it's even more relevant now with with covid 19 where you know as that prior uh, poll indicated a lot of us are working with with staggered shifts um, you know a lot of folks are working remotely uh you know perhaps um, there's swing shifts going on and and the standard you know oversight that you know is typically in place on on you know keeping watch on storeroom inventories may not be there um and so you know a lot of uh storerooms are experiencing shrinkage and and uh, you know parts disappearing and things like that so keeping that security in place is 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 uh, very important um and again about reducing- reducing the amount of demand uh, you know part of this just goes into just rationing and controlling the supply point. Um, we've seen a lot of clients have, you know, experienced a lot of benefit in deploying vending strategies. You know, you put vending machines in place for a lot of these typical uh, and, and high usage, uh, whether it's PPE or uh, other MRO type materials uh, to help reduce the consumption. We see historically about a 30 percent reduction um, in consumption by deploying uh, strategies like vending. Um, you know. Considering your your min-max uh, is, a, is a big, you know, and it's, it's beyond just min-max, right? It's, it's looking at your order quantities. It's looking at uh, should we use blanket orders? Um, should we go out and do some forward buys? You know, given constraints we're seeing on lead times or country of origin, do we need to tick up the mins? Maybe you want to tick up the min and the max. So you're buying a little bit more each time and your reorder point is is higher than before. Um, and uh, you know that that does lead to an increase in inventory, but in some cases, that's an appropriate response uh, when you're seeing the supply variability that we're experiencing right now due to COVID-19. Uh, the second last bullet point here on OEM commercialization, uh, this is you know a big one where you know Glenn mentioned a lot of the OEMs that t- tend to be global in nature. Um, you know if your operation is relying on you know a specific OEM replacement part from a German manufacturer or you know wherever it may be um, in a lot of cases, you know we encourage our clients uh, to to look at those items and see where there's opportunity to potentially you know retool the the operation to to um, you know gravitate from reliance on a specific uh, you know Oem provider that's you know that could be a broad. Uh, to something that's a little bit more standardized, that's available on the MRO market through distribution. Um, you know, there, not only is there cost savings in doing that, uh, but there's, uh, you know, it reduces your, um, your supply variability. Uh, and that, that ties into the critical spares. And a lot of times those OEM items are your critical spares and where you can re-engineer those to be more standard, uh you know items available on the the, the regular distribution market will, will only benefit you uh so a few points here on sourcing um you know the first bullet point here is around what we call an initiating a guerrilla sourcing tactics uh and what we mean by this um you know typically when you when you think of a kind of a guerrilla fighting force you, you think of you know a loose chain of command right And it, it operates hard hits hard and fast uh and really how that translates into the MRO space is, you know, take a look at where you can, you know, push down decision making within your organization. You know, the the authority levels and approval levels required for POs, uh, you know, and a lot of times what we'll see is in a situation like this where money gets a little tight through, you know, sales may be slowing down, uh, you know, due to COVID, uh, production levels may be slowing down, so there tends to be a tighter grip on, you know, spending with a checkbook. Uh, and what we tend to see is that results in, um, you know, waiting until the the item that's needed is, a, is an emergency. It's we're almost waiting too late to actually release the requisition uh, to convert it to a PO. And uh, the more you can kind of force that that decision-making lower down into the organization and allow – uh POs to flow, the, the better off you'll be. Um, you know, uh where we've we've got some options listed here around conforming, you know, looking at your form fit and function of your of your SKUs and exploring alternatives. Um, even just networking, benchmarking, you know, sharing best practices with peers can, can really go a long way. Um, even exploring alternative and non-traditional sources of supply. and What we mean by, we mean by this is, you know, on you, you might have a standard, you know, approved supplier for an item that you've been using for years, but really looking at some of the more dynamic opportunities or, and, and options out there, whether they're online marketplaces, uh, repair houses, uh, you know, suppliers that, that typically supply other verticals, um, you know, looking at gray markets, you know, surplus in markets, there's, there's, all kinds of opportunities here to look at even direct to manufacturers. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do with, uh, you know, you can look at, there's subscriptions that can be purchased to look at customs data where you can query specific uh, commodity types or, or uh, you know, different descriptions of items and see where those are flowing in, not only to see where there could be some direct sources. Um, but even to see where are they going to who's buying them maybe you can reach out to them and, and buy them from them if you're having a hard time getting it through your normal channels uh, those subscriptions do tend to come with a bit of a cost but they can be highly valuable to your sourcing team um, and, and lastly just some it's more tactical really but looking at uh, you know forward buys uh, and blanket orders really can help i mean you know forward buys tend to kind of uh, do cause some ripple effects, you know, Glenn mentioned what's going on with toilet paper. That is the kind of thing you'll see in that space. But really blanket orders is, is really kind of a more uh, conservative approach to really lock up supply, allow your supplier to go ahead and run up large amounts of inventory and hold it in stock for you and release quantities upon upon need uh, is, is really one of the more preferred tactics there to ensure supply. So, so lastly, I'll kind of wrap up with uh, just a slide here around the quality of your data and analytics. Obviously, data is information is power, right? And the more, uh, you know, line of sight that you've got on, on cleansing your data, uh, making sure you understand truly where your needs are, you know, and that all ties into inventory accuracy, um, you know, and being able to actually analyze uh, your, your purchase orders. We tend to see. A lot of emphasis on on this in organizations with their direct spend. You don't see it as much in the indirect spend place where there's, you know, a lot of these reporting tools and things uh, are are set up to to be able to analyze top suppliers, looking at it by category, by region. um, And, and, you know, within those categories that you know are strained, like PPE is a great example right now, understanding who are your top suppliers, uh, you know, who are your, you know, secondary, tertiary sources, um, you know, where do you need to be setting up relationships and preparing, uh, you know, some some uh, secondary sources of supply? And, and, you know, the last piece there is just around contracts. Um, you know, that can, where if you figure out where your 80-20 is, focus there. Get the right contracts in place to ensure the service levels you're looking for. All that really stems from having solid uh, data and analytics in place. Okay, thank you, Brian. Um, This is Glenn again, so I'm
2: gonna follow up a little bit uh, on that a little bit more around uh, actionable data. I think I mentioned early on uh, the term actionable data, uh, which is um, for us and and most other people in the industry, it should be the foundation for everything. Um, Before we go into that, we have our third poll question though. Leah? Yes,
0: we do, and it of course is meant to be very relevant. So one more time, folks, if you can go to your mice and answer the question, is your data actionable? Yes, my data is thoroughly actionable. Maybe, depends on what day it is. In other words, it kind of is, kind of isn't. Not at all, or I'm not sure what is actionable data. What? what def- how do you define actionable data? Tell me more. We have about 50% of folks answering, and I'm gonna give you another 30 seconds to make a stab at answering this question, and uh, then we'll share it, and hear what Glenn has to say about actionable data. We are almost there, 67% of you have voted. Let's get up to 70, and then we'll close and share. All right, I'm gonna close it down. Here we go. 11%, yes, my data is actionable. 35% maybe, 15% no, and 40%, 39% say tell me more. Good, all right. Back to you, Glenn.
2: All right, thank you.
0: Um, So uh,
2: to the uh, 40%, uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about actionable data. Um, Very simply, actionable data uh, gives you the ability to um, investigate, source properly, and, and everything you do, whether it be inventory management and all of that. Um, so the ability to identify, um, as Brian mentioned, find secondary and tertiary sources of supply. Um, in order to do that, you need more than just vendor information. Um, I, I see lots of folks when we get their data, we go through and they have um, you know vendor part numbers um, in there, or vendor uh, descriptions and information doesn't really provide enough information to uh, take that forward. Um, substitution for products with the same forward fit and function is one thing that needs to be considered, right? Um, if it's a good example of that would be, I see lots of people using high-dollar master bearings on, on slow-moving rotating equipment. It's not necessarily, um, you don't necessarily need to pay that for that premium bearing uh, for such a uh, slow-moving operation. Um, actual data means you have manufacturer and manufacturer part number uh, on uh, all the parts where that is available. And we'll talk about here in a minute, uh, OEM commercialization, that even becomes more critical on OEM spares. Um, we could include equipment model numbers, uh, drawings, country of origin, especially from OEMs. Lots of OEMs, you know, you, you order a part and the first thing I'll ask you is, well, what what's the machine model number that's going on, right? Um, they, they do that for a few reasons um, One one is they don't have uh, real good control over their manufacturing process and one engineer prescribes a different part than another engineer prescribed but more so it kind of ties you to them. the example I use is um, Kind of like uh, Hewlett Packard printers, right? They don't make a lot of money on that uh, all-in-one printer you buy at Best Buy for two hundred and ten dollars They make money on selling you ink. Uh, it's the same way with OEMs So it's essential for OEM commercialization um, in order to be able to commercially uh, find commercially available parts in the marketplace, whether it be a motor or a gearbox, a bearing, a belt, whatever that is, um, you need to have the manufacturer manufacturer part number to go along with that to make sure that you don't cause turmoil in your operation because the part doesn't have the same form, fit, and function. Uh, lots of times OEM commercialization requires engineering support especially with electronics right they uh OEMs tend to put uh, uh modify their drives they they change one obscure parameter to make sure it's not plug and play with another drive you can buy somewhere else for example um, difficulty in uh analysis on spin forecasting models uh root cause failure analysis uh because you don't have good data uh if you have all the attributes of the data and all that it can help you identify um you know inventory levels uh, lead times we talked about earlier is one of the other critical things um and basically it it uh, enables you having actual data it enables you to make informed purchasing decisions around you know it's not always price sometimes it's lead time or availability things like that if it's taking you know six months to get something out of uh, Europe. Uh, you may be able to find a, a local source where you can get it within a few days uh, if you have the right, right data. Um, the last thing we're going to talk about a little bit is, is critical spares and, and redefining critical spares in the, in this new world, right, of of COVID-19 and, and how that works. Um, critical spares identified basically as, this is 101, determine asset criti- criticality which is impact on failure, frequency of failure, whether you're going to stock those parts or not stock those parts. Are they OEM spares? Are they custom made? Are they commercially available in the marketplace? And at the end of the day, uh which most of the folks on the phone understand, you know, the risk analysis is, is there a single source of supply? Is if the if it is a single source of supply, is that supplier financially stable? Um you know obviously, with the comings in the last few weeks uh that that isn't always the determining factor anymore so um, you know it's lessons learned, and we're learning every day from uh covid nineteen um so historically uh critical spares uh has been defined you know that failure is immediate it has an impact on production safety environmental whatever the, the critical makes that part critical. Um, are those parts custom made, right? That impacts your lead time, where they're coming from. Sometimes it takes weeks or sometimes months to manufacture a part if you need it for an emergency breakdown or something. Um, what is the, that lead time? Are the parts available through multiple suppliers? Uh, and high-volume items, uh, on, you know, you want to try to get those on exclusive contracts.
1: So, uh, you know, I think a lot of those were – you know, kind of how we, the, the, the paradigm that we sort of had before COVID and, and, you know, in this new world, a lot of these things are shifting and, you know, what we used to see as a critical spare, um, you know, now we're now actually seeing, you know, PPE at fall into and being now considered as, as, you know, part of the criteria of what we, you know, uh, classify as a critical spare. You know, we, we talked about, um, Lead times, you know, before we we very much uh, were reliant or, or just you know assumed that that five day lead time from a uh, from a, a U.S. distributor was uh, was very much reliable, and, and now we've got you know forced into a world where we've got to look a little bit deeper into the 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 true ultimate supply chain of that item and look at its its actual country of origin. To to get some insight on where that lead time could be constrained and understand where you might have some delays, um, you know, and we we talked about through uh, you know multiple sources of, of availability of of suppliers, um, you know, in this and the day and age we're dealing with now, you know, it's it's looking at some of these OEMs and understanding where can we convert this to commercially available altern- alternates, um, and 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 lastly this last bit about uh, you know where we looked at exclusivity and and high volume, you know, where we've got high volume SKUs and exclusive contracts, to really look at, you know, now it's it's not just a, a an effort of looking at, hey, where where can we pursue low cost country sourcing and and have that single source and and devote all of our attention there. Now it's looking at, you know, we were already seeing some some trends of with the tariffs and things. Uh, of looking at near sourcing and and whether it was in Mexico or or in U.S. as opposed to Asia, uh, you know I think this world of of COVID is is really putting even further emphasis on that to look at, um, at near sourcing and and where we can uh, you know have some geographical diversity of of supply as well.
2: Very good, Brian. Thanks. Um, just in closing here um you know kind of what we do with our clients you know we partner for success we can't possibly go in and and, uh tell them everything about their organization right it's about collaboration between maintenance and and supply chain if you boil it down it's maintenance teams basic needs right they need to know what's going on right actionable data gives them that they need uh, access to the bigger picture right and they need timely insights to facilitate decision making. Uh, All of these basic needs are all around data and connecting people to do it, right? You know maintenance is driven by actionable data in order to be successful You have to have the the storeroom and the MRO supply chain and and actionable data to support every bit of that Um, So we'll you know, questions. Um, you know, if interested in learning more, you, you can email me or Brian directly. And uh, we we have a, a newsletter that goes out. Uh, if you're interested in, in learning more about some of these things and and what we're experiencing in the industry and some of our clients and some of our channel partners of of how people are adapting and evolving. Um, so, if, if you want to know more, feel free to uh, email me. I, uh, uh, for
0: one, plan to do that, Glenn, because I would love to get a copy of that uh, of that newsletter. There's a lot that's going to continue to change here, I think. Thank you very much, both Glenn and Brian. And at this point, everyone on the on the line, you are welcome to use the questions tool in your dashboard to enter in questions for both of our guests to answer. I have a couple that have come in them to start ans- asking now, the first one being, If storerooms aren't secure and people are helping themselves to PPE and spare parts, how do you recommend that we monitor storerooms remotely?
2: Um, So there are a couple of ways to do that. Um, You know, obviously the immediate need is is to uh, secure it, especially especially now, Uh, whether it be uh, camera systems. Uh, There are a lot of camera systems available out there. Uh, one of our partners we use actually has facial recognition um uh, and and we put them on most of our storerooms where if someone walks in you know in, in their um, they're motion activated cameras, so they aren't sitting there filming all the time they just if somebody and you can design a certain window right if somebody goes to this shelf right you can flip the camera on and through facial recognition know who it is and and what they got um So I I think that's uh, the immediate need, one of the quick ways to do it long-term, obviously, is to have a secure storeroom with key card access. Brian mentioned uh, industrial vending uh, is a good solution as well. Uh, You know, things are secure inside a vending machine, and and you scan a badge or a card to uh, get things out is another one.
0: And so having that identification of who took the part will help manage consumption.
2: It, exactly. I mean, you know, Brian mentioned the, just bending uh, that. You know, we normally see a thirty percent reduction in overall consumption. I, I think it's, for lack of a better term, it's just the fact that they know Big Brother's watching, right? So okay. instead of getting five pairs of gloves, they're only going to get one. Right.
0: It's responsibility. All right. And another interesting question. Um. So you brought up a really good point that during times like this, the inclination is to tighten the checkbook, right? But that on the contrary, you recommend lowering the floor of authority to buy parts. Mm. So you've pointed out some tension there. Um, folks want to know how you have that conversation internally.
1: Yeah, you know, and it's it's funny because, um, you know, both that and the, that prior bullet around uh, sort of loosening the, the chain of command and sort of decentralizing some of the um, uh you know, authority levels are, are actually, you know, contrary to our normal um, right. uh, best practices that we would typically, you know, recommend uh, and encourage with our clients and things. Um, you know, and so I think it's, you know, when you get into a bit of a, an emergency state, you know, I think there has to be uh, some discussion with the management that, you know, if, if you don't uh, encourage some agility, within your organization's ability to react um you're going to get stuck um and you know we we tend to see that just even you know before covid you know that that tends to be a typical constraint where uh, you know whether it's the maintenance crew or, or the buyers are operating with some kind of budgetary constraint on you know what all they can they can buy they may be proposing everything that they need and, and want to work on repair, but, you know, they're only getting approvals for half of it. And then uh, we see requisitions that will just sit in in our clients kind of, you know, internal queue for uh, workflow approvals uh, for weeks, but before they actually get approved and converted to a PO. And at that point, it's, it's hot. It's an emergency. It's, we needed it yesterday. Oh my God. You know, can you get it to us right now? And mm-hmm. and I think what we're trying to you know that's the discussion that we need that that I would encourage folks to have with their uh, with their management and then within their organization is around you know point to those times in the past where you got caught because of a budgetary constraint mm-hmm. and and if if you can you know reference those items and and talk about how um, they're going to be happening even more and more there's the folks that are even available to make those approvals perhaps are now working remotely. Uh, And they're not on site to say, hey, you, can you approve this and get a signature? uh, Whether or not those workflows are happening electronically or, or they're more manual may lend itself to some discussion, too, around the environment that we're currently in with a more distributed working model.
0: Okay. We have a lot of great questions coming in, so I'm going to fire a couple more at you guys. All right, uh, is there a template available for actionable data to procure for greenfield production equipment? There's a couple couple questions around that. So if you have new equipment, is there a template so that you can organize the actionable data that you need?
2: Um, yes. I mean, we, we have some, some internal equipment we use or in, internal templates we use. Um, you know, new, new equipment is a challenge uh, in itself, uh, being that um, I used to do uh, capital equipment and, and I was a capital projects engineer, installed a lot of capital equipment. We all know we get a list of what they consider critical spares from the OEM mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. it costs you $2 million if you wanted to buy everything. You could assemble the machine in the plant. So right. you have to, you know, you have to realistically go through that. I used to grab the factory techs that worked for the OEM, right? So, all right, what do I really do Right. And, and help me do that. Uh, but yes, there are certain, um, templates that, that we use to make sure that we're capturing the right data you know the the main one of those and I'll just tell you the, the big ones are manufacturer manufacturer part number right unit of measure is, is a critical one that that goes overlooked a lot and then as many attributes you can fill in about that um, specific part
0: so someone else has followed up it's it's super interesting um that they say that when they get new equipment they at most get a manual and a bomb but no form fitter function items on it so then what do you do
2: uh, that's a challenge. Uh, absolutely. And, and I used to go through some of those same struggles, uh, years ago. Um, that normally I would utilize the, the factory techs again, mm-hmm. uh, to mm-hmm. get some engineers and go through and do crawls on that new equipment to identify, all right, what are these critical components? Um, you know, what's going to shut this operation down? You know, if it's a dryer, obviously you need a made belt, right? Dryer belt, things like that. Um, I, I used to utilize the, the techs a lot. Uh, if you ask them the questions, they know more about that equipment than anybody right. uh, most engineers don't, don't engage them though that, that was one of the sources i mm. used.
0: okay okay all right um another question on storeroom do you have a software that you recommend for inventory control
2: um not any specific um i mean we we have for our clients right we have our own internal software that we've developed right so um, historically, we don't use, uh, MinMax, uh, as a storeroom trigger point. We use, uh, demand forecasting, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a, model specific to our software. Um, but we also integrate, uh, obviously, I mean, Emate is a good example, right? We, with Fluke's Emate system, we integrate with that. We integrate with SAP. We integrate with a lot of other, of our client systems where we would use our inventory management tool our scanning and barcoding and all that to manage the storeroom, but that inventory is also reflected as, as the, uh, the master record in our client's ERP systems. So they don't okay. lose that visibility internally,
0: right? Magic word, integration. Okay, yep. we have time for one more question. Um, can you talk more about part re-engineering and where it applies?
2: Yes, um, and You'll notice we use the term, uh, re-engineering and not reverse engineering. To me, reverse engineering is a cuss word, right? (laughs) So, because, you know, you find a lot of people that, uh, say, oh, let's go redesign this part. We don't want to just redesign that part. We want to make it increase the life cycle of that part, make it last longer. It could be the application of that part. But, um, so it requires, um, you know, there are technologies out there that we use, there's 3D scanning technologies, right, that uh, we use internally uh, for some of our engineers to use, but also uh, we can do some prototyping with 3D printing and technology, but it's not just to take apart and make make it the same, right, we want to take that part and and re-engineer it to make it better, uh, whether it lasts longer or um, whether it's less expensive or whatever that is there, ne- there needs to be some benefit to re-engineer that part if you're just designing the same thing over again you, you've wasted money redesigning the same part yep. in most cases
0: thank you that helps all right will you forward to the last slide for me glenn yeah. There is, folks, when I close the webinar today, and we, we are at the end, stay online, because it'll take the survey a couple seconds to pop up, and we really want to get your feedback on today, your, your experience in general. Once you answer that survey, we will send you a copy of the presentation, and then the recording of this webinar will be up online on ExcelX in just a day or so. So thank you very, very much, both Glenn and Brian. It was such a pleasure to have you here today. This is such valuable information. I appreciate it very much.
2: Absolutely. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, everyone.
0: All right. Best of luck to everyone. We'll see you next time. And thank you again. Bye-bye for now.